I'd like to talk tonight about God and the ultimate truth. So, obviously this is a subject that has uh, kind of gripped humanity for uh, millennia and been discussed and debated and theologized and argued about and gone to war over, etc. <clears throat> so can only really touch on some aspects, but wanted to perhaps begin to bring a little bit of the a little bit of a Dharma perspective, or what might be a Dharma perspective. So, also, right away, <laughs> uh, very aware that, um, having said that, there's probably quite a number of reactions in the hall. Uh, some completely turned off by the word, just, just, don't want to know, find the actual idea of it repulsive, uh, not a good feeling associated with it. Uh, for some, there has been in the past, uh, perhaps in childhood or, or, or some other time of life, a, um, some hurt associated around either formal religion or the idea of God or the way that was uh, transmitted came into one's life. So I'm, I'm also aware of that. Some people are not particularly repulsed or hurt. They're just not interested. And, and that's fair enough for <laughs> response to. And some people are very interested. Very interested. All of that, all of those responses may change in one's life and may change very unexpectedly uh, in the course of one uh, just growing, opening as a human being, inquiring into things. And it's certainly not my intention tonight to uh, change anyone's view or convert anyone to this or that or, or argue with anyone about anything. Uh, to prove or disprove or, or anything like that, and, and just that's not the point. I, I would like to, uh, as I said, just explore and and uh, bring some questioning into this area from from what might be one Dharma perspective. What does this whole uh, idea, notion, sense, perhaps, of God? Uh, how does it affect our mind and heart? So, to use that phrase again, in this tradition, uh, the Vipassana tradition, insight meditation tradition, there's not a lot, well, first of all, we don't talk much about God at all, <laughs> uh, but there's also not a lot of emphasis on devotion. So some other uh, spiritual traditions, a lot of other spiritual traditions, it's quite central. Even some Buddhist traditions, it's, it's pretty central. It's a pretty... Um, powerful and, and, and important aspect of, of that path. And devotion as an, as an energy, as a, as a uh, quality of the heart, as a manifestation in the heart, devotion to something 
larger, something vaster than the self or what's immediately apparent. That opening the heart can have, at times for some people, tremendous power to it, tremendous transformative power. And I'm not necessarily equating devotion with ritual either. So again, uh, Guy House uh, actually has more ritual than it did have years ago. So these uh, statues have appeared, which is sort of huge, actually. <laughs> so it used to be nothing at all. Um, and so some people bow and some people don't, and, and this and that. Um, but I'm actually not equating devotion with ritual. can be that a person's heart is bursting with a sense of devotion and there's no outer sign of that. No, no, there's no bowing, there's no bells and smoke and uh, whistles. And, uh, or, or it can be that there's actually a lot of ritual and not that the heart is actually not that open in devotion. So I'm, t- I'm talking about devotion separate from ritual. But that power of, of devotion, this opening of uh, a sort of Uh, movement in the heart, a current in the heart towards something vaster. Uh, The power of that to heal and transform the heart is enormous. And as I said, it can come quite unexpectedly in one's life. Uh, Some people will have always had that kind of personality to move towards that or be very comfortable in that kind of tradition. Other people, it's very unexpected. For some, uh, there may be a period of practicing and sort of with mindfulness, with awareness, uh, or uh, otherwise investigating into oneself and working on a kind of healing process. And something happens, or can happen, as the heart opens in healing, some other energy is able to move in there and can only kind of find its um, home and its expression uh, in, in really a deep sense of devotion. So you get this devotion as a transformative energy, bringing healing and bringing heart opening, and in some cases, healing and heart opening, bringing a sense of devotion. And sometimes, uh, what what I see for myself and, and for others is that sometimes it's only the quality of devotion that is actually capable of a certain uh, a certain power. It's only that quality. I'm not saying it's a necessary quality. I'm just saying uh, for some people it's not necessary and they will go through their whole lives and it's just not something they, uh, this whole notion of God or certainly devotion is not something they go near. But sometimes only devotion that is so powerful. For some people, some of the time. So when we use the word God, when we think about God, when we hear that word, what we usually, uh, what immediately comes to mind for many of us is actually beliefs. You believe in God or, or, or you don't believe in God or whatever. And for some, again speaking for myself, when we have the opposite kind of approach, so epitomized somewhat in this tradition, but sort of taken to extreme, say in the teachings of Krishnamurti, maybe be familiar with, uh, this Indian teacher died uh, 15 years ago or so, I think. Uh, his approach was sort of uncompromising, no beliefs, no assumptions, scrap all that, it's baggage, it's, it's a veil, it's getting in the way, it's nonsense, etc. Just 
uh, have faith in the power of attention, the power of investigating life and experience through, through attention. And there's a kind of really back-to-basic sort of uh, almost ruthless, clean honesty with oneself and with life. And that's, I think, for many people, that approach, no assumptions, nothing, that we just rely on the power of attention, of my attention to life. Uh, for some, that's extremely attractive. And when we think of beliefs and belief in God, and we might immediately think, uh, the immediate image is old man, beard, cloud, sitting, uh, <laughs> you know, dishing out favors if you ask him nicely. Uh, enough. And that may be the first image, it's kind of kid's image of God. And, but for some people that, that actually exists, and it, uh, as, as a grown-up it exists. Uh, life is difficult. <laughs> and uh, we, because life is uncertain, we touched on this today, because life is uncertain, uh, there is fear in life. Often there's fear. And so when there's fear, there can be the movement to seek comfort. And we've touched on this. And it can go to the image of a deity who will uh, look after us by supplying certain uh, favors or, or whatever. And of course it can go the other way. And, and this is where a lot of people have been hurt. Uh, the image of a judging deity and then there's fear in relationship to that deity. So this God is sitting on the cloud uh, with a book of judgment and, you know, you're going to hell, etc. And we're all familiar with that. However, I have to say, from, from moving in different spiritual circles over the years, that even, it's quite remarkable, even for people who believe in a God that judges, if that, it's quite... If that fear and the sort of guilt and the whole, the whole thing from it is actually not too neurotic, uh, it somehow can lead to compassion in some cases. It's quite, it's quite striking. I've reflected on this and uh, sometimes I think that perhaps innate to human beings, innate to the heart of human beings, the consciousness of human beings, there is maybe a deep-seated capacity for almost what I would call spiritual genius, in the sense that it can take any idea, any concept, <coughs> no matter how almost uh, ridiculous and kind of obviously uh, bearing little connection with reality, even an oppressive idea, and somehow turn that into a treasure in the heart. Somehow, because, because of some uh, relationship with it, or some seeing it in the right way, or some surrender or something. I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying that happens for everyone at all, but I, I have seen, I have uh, known people like this. There's that capacity to take something that just seems completely off the wall, maybe to most people nowadays, and somehow turn it into a treasure. So, it's interesting reflecting on you know, some famous people, like Mother Teresa, for instance. I, I know uh, she, sometimes people uh, do find fault with her for certain things, whatever, but you have to kind of look at that life and kind of say, 
wow. Uh, the, the extraordinary outpouring of compassion there, and sensitivity. And she pretty much believed that everything the Pope said was absolutely true. And it was just, she didn't question, it was gospel truth. It was something in her heart was able to take all that and just transform it. And in this comes this ideas and these beliefs and outcomes, in, in a way, pure gold. So, uh, to quote Jesus actually, by their fruits you shall know them. By their fruits you shall know them. So we can argue with the belief and this belief and that belief. Look at how a person's living. Is the fruit compassion? Staying with beliefs for a second. To ask again, what's behind a belief? What is behind a belief that we can have? Is it fear? Are we believing, we're wanting to believe something because we're afraid? Afraid of life, afraid of death, afraid of the unknown? Or is it based on experience? That actually doesn't go for this realm of God, it goes for everything. So we can, I mean, it's, it's interesting to reflect on what are the beliefs I actually have about life. Often, we're carrying around uh, a huge sack of unexamined beliefs and assumptions about life, ourselves, others, experience. And can be very important uh, in our life to actually open that sack and have a look and say, what is it that I'm believing? And is it based on fear? Is it based on uh, what I know to be true from experience? Or what my experience seems to be telling me? Or is it based on just believing what uh, parents or society or whatever else, is it just handed down? Are we believing because of that? And this, this can be for anything. So even in Buddhism, uh, so do we believe in reincarnation or rebirth or what, you know, whatever you want to call it? Well, where is that belief coming from? So what's behind the belief? And then this other question, does belief, in this case, does belief in a God does that uh, lead to an increase in the openness of the heart, an increase in compassion, uh, an increase in fearlessness? What I see is that sometimes it does, and sometimes it really doesn't. But it's true that both are there. For some people, it's extraordinary uh, fearlessness, compassion, etc., that comes openness. And some, and we just see it looking around the world, and the history of the world, it, obviously it doesn't. But it's important to ask the opposite question. Does non-belief lead to openness, fearlessness, compassion? Uh, to me it's absolutely not at all a uh, guarantee that it does. Not, not at all. And when, I say not, when we say non-belief, what do we actually Again, what are the unexamined beliefs that we're actually calling non-belief? So, is non-belief really belief in scientific rationality, which has become the sort of uh, common coin, uh, accepted view of how things work at, at, at this point in human sort of history? Or perhaps.
perhaps more important even than that, dharmically speaking, does my non-belief in God, or someone's non-belief in God, does that actually equal a kind of nihilistic belief? There's nothing out there, there's no point in life, there's uh, no ultimately true right or wrong, no values, and then it just a hair's breadth spilling over into, well, might as well get the most pleasure I can during this period of life. And, and you know, in a way, consumerism is, is uh, you could say, um, the, the, the fruit of, of that kind of nihilism, in a way. And I was reading, I can't remember, I think it was in Resurgence magazine that said something like, there's no coincidence that, uh, if I remember, but societies with a high level of consumerism are societies with a low level of uh, religion. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting, isn't it? And I think that kind of nihilism, and I could be wrong here, but sometimes I have a sense that that kind of nihilism is actually a bit of a of what's quite common nowadays in society. So we don't actually have a, um, say, if you go out to medieval times, everyone believed in God. It was just a given. Nowadays, we don't have really anything central that way. And sometimes what that actually translates that in, in the life is a kind of relative pointlessness to it all. Might as well just maximize the pleasure for me and maybe a few people around me. God again, we think of a great being, or the supreme being, or great being, as if we believe in more than one. And actually this has its parallels in, uh, in Buddhist tradition as well, in especially Mahayana tradition, we talk about bodhisattvas. So bodhisattva is someone who has um, decided to devote themselves to, out of compassion, f uh, to all beings, to, to the liberation of all beings, and they've made a uh, a, a radical uh, commitment to do that. And it, in their sort of more archetypal forms, they're actually embodiments of certain energies. You have the, the Bodhisattva of compassion, the Bodhisattva of wisdom, etc. And it's interesting, I was reading uh, in a history of Buddhism that when, uh, when the missionaries went, I can't remember if it was Tibet or Mongolia, but they got there, and they were explaining the sort of basically giving catechism classes or whatever. And when they, all the, uh, the locals <laughs> were sort of fall, you know, falling asleep. <laughs> and then when they got to the bits about Jesus and the stories of his life, they would, they would suddenly be completely awake and, and really um, gleeful and, and really touched and sort of devotional. And this puzzled the missionaries. And uh, they, they somehow found out that they would just hear the story of Jesus and they could fit it right into their scheme. Oh, he's just another bodhisattva. He's, he's the bodhisattva of compassion. And it was fine, it fitted right in. But again, is it helpful or not? Is it helpful or not to uh, believe in this kind of being and their pure manifestation of a certain kind of energy? So in Jesus' case, compassion or 
the Bodhisattva of Compassion is uh, Avalokiteshvara, Tara. Is it helpful or not? It, there are practices that, uh, in, in Buddhist Dharma, in the Tibetan tradition especially, where one is actually contemplating the qualities of love, of wisdom, of compassion, whatever, of this Bodhisattva, and, and calling upon that deity, calling upon the energy of that. And somehow, a person dedicates themselves to this kind of practicing, and it actually finds its way into the heart and out of the heart, into and through the heart. And one begins uh, to really embody those qualities. And one sees this in you know, uh, devoutly practicing Christians and devoutly uh, practicing in, in some Tibetan traditions as well. Is it helpful or is it not? The Buddha said, that which you dwell on, that which you meditate on, is what you become. That which you meditate on is what you become. In a way, part of the, uh, the model of Jesus is something to aspire to. And the same with the Bodhisattva, it's something, it's like a, an ideal for the heart to aspire to, to become Christ-like. And then with this idea of, great, of a great being, or, or great beings, or supreme being, there's this very beautiful um, orientation in someone's practice that can come. Uh, it comes from when, when Jesus was in the, the, the garden at Gethsemane, just before being uh, captured. And he said uh, to God, Thy will, not mine, be done. Thy will, not mine, be done. And for some people, I'm aware as I'm talking, some, again, some people just... You know, and some people, maybe there's something that touches, I don't know. But this as a practice, uh, from a Dharma perspective, what's going on there? It's letting go of the self-centered desire. And this, this has its obvious parallels in what we've been talking about over the days here, and, and the Dharma. Letting go of the self-centered desire over and over in one li- one's life. Thy will, not mine, be done. And so people with this practice uh, do that over and over and ask themselves in a very deep and earnest way, what is God's will for me in this situation? What is God's will for me in this situation? And there can be with that a very, uh, very deep and beautiful listening, listening for that, listening for the direction, something very lovely in that. And it can also get twisted. And in a way, to ask what's God's will for me is still somewhat self-centered. And where it can very easily go, and again, talking all paths, all practices will have their benefits and their pitfalls, that's all. Where it can very easily go is into this sense of the universe is kind of set up for me, for myself, and my my, uh, satisfaction, my fulfillment. And we have to ask ourselves, is it? Actually, is it? And the capacity, uh, again, just from what I've seen in my past, knowing knowing different people, the capacity for for a delusion with with this is enormous. Um, so I actually knew once a psychotherapist who used to talk a lot in this language, and she would say, "What's God's will for me?" And it's, it turned out that God's will was uh, for her to charge. I think it was almost $3,000 uh, uh, 
for two hours of psychotherapy a week. <laughs> and God wants me to make more money, she said. And uh, other, other instances, uh, someone involved in buying property and then selling it uh, at a much, you know, doing it up a bit and selling it at a hiked up price and was sort of listening for God's guidance about which property they should buy as if this God has nothing better to do <laughs> than to kind of, you know, take care of your profit margins. So I remember a, a very beautiful and, and uh, very gentle uh, old Trappist monk, uh, Father Thomas Keating, uh, lives in America, he might, he might be dead now, I don't know. And he, he used to say, people make such a fuss about this, God's will. It's very simple, God's will is always love. It's just, you do the loving thing, it's simple. It's not so much about self and what will be best for me, what will be best for me. So how easily uh, thy will actually becomes thy will as long as, it's, as long as it's what's good for me. If we, if we cast our minds back in history, what we're told, in medieval times, etc., uh, God was indisputably, no, no question, the most powerful force, the most powerful thing. There, there was nothing above that. It was, you know, pater omnipotens, completely pa all powerful, and no, no, no comparison. And it was also, in a way, a, supposedly a person's primary orientation in life to be oriented towards God, to be or something, and again, something very beautiful in that. What, what does it even mean to be oriented towards God? And so, if we think, what am I oriented towards? What, for me, is, is the most powerful thing? One of my teachers, uh, you say, what's my God? What's my God? And to be really honest about this, and for some, uh, it's, it's true. Uh, my God is truth. The seeking, the search for truth, or oh my God is compassion, a life completely devoted to compassion. Well, that's the, that's the orientation, that's the, the compass bearing which one keeps coming back to, of course one strays from that, but that's the orientation. Beautiful, beautiful, and that's the God, that's the most powerful force in life. But again, to repeat something I've said probably every day here, uh, if we're really honest, what are the most powerful forces in our lives? And sometimes it is just these petty little things. Just want to be a bit more comfortable. Just want things to be a bit more convenient. A bit more sense pleasure. And again, that's very human. But what is it, what would it be to go through one's life, be on the deathbed, can't do it again, and, and look back and have a moment of clarity and realize, wow, wow, 90-something percent of the choices I made, the tiny little choices and maybe even the bigger choices, were just about those petty little movements. And what else, what did that obscure and what did that block? <coughs> so in Dharma language, uh, the, the Buddha talks about kilesas, this sort of um, torments of the heart or obscuration. So, greed and aversion and delusion. It's like how much of our choices and lives are coming out of that fear, that kind of thing. Is it actually, if we're really honest, has that become our God? 
Sometimes, uh, on the occasions when a Buddhist teacher is asked about this, um, different responses are given. And um, one very nice one is uh, that there is only one divine, and that is in the human heart. That's in the capacity of the human heart. And the Buddha talks about, which I touched on at some point, I can't remember, the Brahma-viharas. So these four qualities, uh, capacities of the heart, and the actual translation of Brahma-vihara means, excuse me, divine dwelling, divine abode. That one cultivates loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and joy in the joy, in the joy of others, and equanimity as qualities, qualities of the heart which actually are divine. They move into a feeling of, of something sublime and divine. And the only real divinity there is in life is, is there. In, in, in the human heart uh, filled, or maybe even non-human as well, in the heart filled with those qualities. That's what divinity is. That's great. That's great. It's wonderful. And for some people, that's fine. Thank you very much. Okay. I know what to do. That's okay. But for people who really then devote themselves to these practices, really devote themselves to developing metta, compassion, joy, equanimity, what can happen, can happen for some people is that the sense moves of love, of compassion, of joy, of equanimity from being in here, in the heart, it starts to grow. Can happen for some people. And it's, it's actually not as rare as it might sound. Starts to grow and begin to, a person begins to sense and perceive that there is a love in which they are existing, in which all things are existing. There is a compassion or a joy or a peace in which they, they sit and walk and uh, move and all things sit and walk and move. Not as uh, rare as you might think. It's actually moved way beyond this. If one really devotes oneself to these practices, can happen. And there's a sense of receiving that from the universe, as if those qualities, love and compassion and joy, are woven into the fabric of the universe. And it's a very powerful perception, and very healing and transforming perception. And can go even deeper. Can, not only is that something holding you, but actually all things are, are of that substance. All things are of love. Their true nature is love. Their true nature is compassion, or joy, or peace. Can be, uh, talking about very deep mystical experiences, extremely striking, extremely beautiful. And it can be in a state of meditation, but it can also last afterwards. Uh, and in, in a way, there's a kind of after image of it. And so one's walking around, not in meditation, has that sense. For some occasion, it happens to people outside of meditation. I have a friend who uh, meditates, or she used to meditate very, very rarely. And she was in a restaurant just in a work day, zipped in to have lunch, and uh, ordered whatever it was, and was waiting for the waiter to bring it. And then suddenly she said it was like 
we were all inside God, and this is not a very religious person. <laughs> and uh, she was like, well, why isn't anyone talking about this? Mostly, though, it comes from practice. And in that, there is a huge sense of oneness. Everything is of the substance of this love and compassion. So, I'm going to interject something. It can be hard, I know, sometimes, uh, when one dis- you hear about some states and you think, well, well I'll never get there, or, or you know, uh, it's way beyond my reach, or I don't even know what he's talking about. I'm just trying to stay with two breaths in a row. <laughs> I, I'm aware of that. Um, please just to notice, uh, notice, um, notice the reaction. Again, does it have to be about self? And can it just, um, can it just be heard? But just to notice what, what happens in the mind when you hear this kind of stuff. Sometimes that sense can also happen with awareness, that it's actually awareness that seems to expand and not just be in here. And again, everything is of the fabric of awareness. These are profound mystical states, but they are, they are available to human consciousness. And a person, a, ded- a dedicated practitioner, can go in and out of this, in and out of this, in and out of this sense, a uh, remarkable sense and be- can begin to wonder, because at first you might hear that and you think, well, okay, something's happened in the brain and they're just weird, it's like taking some drug or something, you know. Uh, but a person goes in and out and then begins to wonder, well, pff, what is real? What's the real way things are? Is it this normal kind of thing? Me here, you there, humdrum, just trying to get through the day? Or is it this other sense? can be that a person gets stuck in one of these places and, and kind of takes that as, as what God is. God is the ultimate truth. And, and uh, you hear phrases like uh, St. Paul or St. Peter, uh, God is love, Deus caritas est. And it's, it's a very strong mystical experience. It's, not, it's, it's very real, but a person can get stuck at that level and say, done, finished, found God, that's it. If, if one keeps the questioning alive, though, what happens is one knows one goes in and out and in and out of this state, of these perceptions. And one begins to ask, well, what's real? And maybe the norm, so-called normal everyday, what everyone seems to agree on view of things, and this mystical state, maybe they're equally real or equally unreal. Maybe they're both just views. They're views, perceptions arising dependent on conditions. And in a way, that's what Dharma practice is pointing to, this emptiness of perception. That means that no perception in and of itself is real. But that doesn't mean, uh, sometimes a person can hear that and think, oh, you know, there's a kind of disappointment in that. Emptiness is not nihilistic. It's, it's difficult to, to, to understand. Emptiness is not saying, it doesn't matter, it's not real, forget it. I think that for people really, 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 really dedicated, and these, this is uh, possible experiences, one needs to let those uh, perceptions actually transform the heart. 
and needs to not start disregarding right away, saying, oh, they're impermanent, I shouldn't get attached, and whatever. Actually be in that state over and over until the heart is opened and transformed by it. If, if, if this is difficult to listen to, <laughs> if this is difficult to listen to, just, just hear it as a kind of uh, listening to what the possibilities are. It's, that's all. It doesn't have to reflect on anything other than that. If we, in a way, don't get attached to these perceptions, where, what happens? And, and Buddhism says, don't get attached to this, don't get this impermanent, don't get attached. If we don't get attached, we, what happens is we go back to the default conventional view. I'm here, you're there, humdrum, getting through the day. In a way, one of my teachers used to say, get attached to all this, get attached to it. Because it's only in the getting attached that can actually transform the heart, transform the understanding and the perception. So if a, if a person is really dedicated uh, to God or to the truth um, and starts with a sense of God, I, I think there will be an evolution of that sense of what God is over one's life, over one's practice. There was a, an interviewer doing an interview with Mother Teresa and, and he, he asked her, uh, so what do you say to God when you pray? She said, nothing, I just listen. I said, oh, what does God say to you? And she said, nothing, he just listens too. <laughs> and before the interviewer could ask anything else, she said, and if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. <laughs> there is a sense that for people really going into this deeply, the, the notion, the sense of God will transform, it has to transform. In terms of Dharma, one of the very interesting ways it transforms, or can transform, is <coughs> how to put it. Dharma teachings question the reality of this personal self, of this ego, of this sense of self that we have. When there comes a point in practice when that personal sense of self is actually not believed in the normal way anymore, it's just not something one believes anymore, then what will go as well is the sense of a personal God with whom one can have a personal relationship. To the degree that one doesn't take so seriously the sense of personal self, the sense of personal God will decrease. And then I read a book, I, I couldn't remember the name of it, but it's, it's a very interesting book by this uh, devout Catholic woman called Bernadette Roberts. And it's about uh, without understanding anything about uh, Dharma teachings and emptiness of self, she just falls into these states of loss of self. And through that, through going in and out of that, finds her, her personal relationship with a personal God just uh, waning. And what can then begin to take its place is more of an impersonal sense of God, more of a mystical sense of God. So, for example, in the sense of love, or uh, consci cosmic consciousness, or, or whatever. 
there is a, uh, or there was a, a, Christ, a Christian mystic called St. John of the Cross, uh, one, of the, one of the greatest Christian mystics, um, Spanish, I think he lived in the 1500 and something. He had a phrase called the, he had two phrases, dark night of the soul, which has become quite a famous, sort of, or quite well used phrase, and something else called dark night of the sense. And what he's referring to is uh, what I talked about at the end of the talk last night, this dispassion that the Buddha talked about, a sense of the things of the world no longer really doing it for one. Individual things is not it, is not going to fulfill this thing, that thing, no matter how colorful and whatever. Somehow, in his language, the soul has uh, well, in his language, actually, God has taken away the pleasure of those things to some extent, and there's a dispassion with those things. Dark night of the sense. There's another Christian mystic called Meister Eckhart, uh, who was earlier a German mystic, and also one of the, one of the great Christian mystics. And he, he had this funny phrase, you say, abandon creatures, abandon creatures. What he means is abandon that which is created, and anything that uh, you realize is created is, is um, of time in that sense. Abandon it, let it go, let it go. So you can see this has a lot of similarities with uh, what I was talking about last night, just letting go, letting go, letting go, that the Buddha talked about. And to fill in a little bit and, and uh, retrace from last night, when we abandon in this way, when we let go of things, what comes is what the Buddha would call equanimity, a state of equanimity. The deeper we let go, the more equanimity, the more stillness and calmness and uh, openness of being comes. In that, also what can happen, because we're not so invested in the pushing away what we don't like and pulling towards us what we don't like, we're not building things up, building experience up through this push and pull. And so, as I said last night and today, there is a fading of the experience, there's a changing and an actual fading of the experience. So in states of deep equanimity or deep abandoning creatures, as my Eckhart would say, creatures actually uh, fade, they fade from consciousness. Things, experiences fade from consciousness. One is left with a sense of backdrop of experience, the backdrop of experience, the sound of silence, of silence itself. From the Dharma perspective, this means, as we were talking about today in the question-answer period, that things are empty because they depend on me pushing and pulling and struggling with them, this completely counterintuitive sense of things. Things, creatures, experiences are empty. Uh, and Master Eckhart also says, the creature does not exist. So again, to following on, to really following on from last night in a way this part, the real world in that sense is empty. So one can have let go of a belief in the personal self to a certain degree. When that becomes established, a sort of dis disbelief in the personal self as a reality, then the personal self fades a bit, or the personal God sense fades a bit. 
at this point, when one actually begins to question the reality of what we call the world and experience and phenomena, even uh, a sense of God as an intelligence in the cosmos begins to fade. Because an intelligence is deciding and choosing between this thing happening and that thing happening, this event and that event. And one has seen in meditation, this event and that event are not real, they're empty. The real world is empty, and so the notion of God as an intelligence, it loses its importance, it loses its centrality. So where is one left then? Um, St. John of the Cross had this second little phrase, dark night of the soul, which has become quite a common phrase in, in our vocabulary. Mostly people use it to mean when they were having a hard time about something, they were a bit depressed or uh, this or that. He, he meant it in a much more specific way, which is, it seems uh, to the practitioner, whatever, that God has taken away every nice experience, every beautiful experience that seemed to uh, express God or be God. So that sense of love and that sense of uh, compassion that I was talking about in the mystical sense or whatever. And the soul is left in this quandary. Maybe all there is is a sense of silence. Is it something beyond the silence? Do I need to somehow pierce through the silence? Or maybe is it something in the silence? And silence becomes a very important factor, a very prominent feature when the, uh, at this point in one's path, whatever it is, Buddhist, Christian, whatever. So Meister Eckhart also had a phrase, he said, there is nothing like God, you can't compare God to anything, but of all things, the thing most similar to God is silence. And then Thomas Merton, who was a Trappist monk uh, in the 20th century, and a beautiful poet and writer, uh, peace activist, and just a, a wonderful person as well, and very uh, mystical, also one of the first people who began to bridge, uh, sort of begin a Christian Buddhist dialogue and met with the Dalai Lama, etc. And he, he uh, wrote at one point, very beautiful. My life, his life as a monk, in a very austere, uh, silent order, the Trappist order, my life is a listening in silence. My life is a listening in silence. And he went on to explain, not listening for anything. I'm not listening for direction. I'm not listening for some kind of information, you know, psychically or something. something rather in and of the silence itself. And I think it was a theologian, Paul Tillich, Tillich who, crown, who coined this phrase, the ground of being. And at this point in practice, if we're practicing the Buddhist way, it can really seem like, ah, I know what they're talking about. Everything has faded somewhat. There's just the flickering of experience in and out of this backdrop of silence, of sort of space or nothingness. 
it seems like, can seem like, everything is born out of that silence and disappears back into it. It arises and disappears from and into that silence. <coughs> and one wonders, is that, is that ground of being, is it eternal? And is that perhaps what the Buddha meant when he said, there is uh, an, an unborn, an undying, an uncreated, the words the Buddha used, and one thinks, well that's it. It's, it seems to be there, whatever. Any experience seems to have that as a sort of context, a backdrop, this silence, this ground of being. It seems to last forever and be eternal in that way, be unshakable. But if we really go into the practice deeply, there's a problem here as well, or there's this... Uh, is something more as well. If one really, really, really deeply lets go of the push and pull with experience, not pushing, just all the subtleties of the push and pull, there's a very deep, uh, talking about a very deep insight meditation practice, basically. One's really honing in on the push and pull and really letting that go and letting that go and letting it deepen and deepen and deepen, opening to the subtler and subtler levels of the way we struggle with experience and letting it go, and letting it go, and letting it go. Very deep, very still, very beautiful. What can happen is one goes beyond time. There's the actual fabric of time breaks. There's a, timeless, a timelessness that comes. And one realizes too, time is empty as well. So this notion of time is, in a way, dependent on a subtle level of pushing and pulling with experience. It's, this is completely mind... It's uh, completely counterintuitive. One of the most basic intuitive senses we have is that of time. It's, it's, it goes unquestioned. Of course, time trundles along no matter what I do. And it will trundle along after I'm dead and before I'm born, etc. It seems so obvious. When one goes really deep into this letting go, uh, one sees that the time, the experience of time, is actually dependent on a certain amount of push and pull with experience. So the notion of eternal, something, a God lasting forever, is also questioned, because forever implies forever in time, and time is empty. When there's a time, when there's time, there also needs to for most people, there needs to be a creator, something at the beginning of that, to create everything. So we it can, and some people do, talk about kind of what's left. What's left when a person has let go of <coughs> all, any last trace of pushing and pulling with experience, any last trace of struggle extremely deep practice talking about now. And sometimes people use the words unconditioned or unfabricated. Um, but I'm not sure whether, whether one can really make a thing out of that, an object out of that. I'm not sure. And certainly not to make a duality out of that. There's that and then there's all this. Interesting 
the Buddha's approach of the Four Noble Truths, going back to the question the other day. Four Noble Truths are quite radical because it's not about believing or anything else, it's just about where's the suffering and can I release it? So it's just about letting go of any sense of stress or suffering, letting go of this push and pull. Push and pull is basic form of stress and suffering. Just letting go over and over and one will come to the truth, the ultimate truth of things. So in the dark night of the souls, according to St. John of the Cross, uh, his view of it was that God uh, has taken away anything that one might put one's uh, finger on and say, that's God, and point to and say, that's God. And God has taken that away and left, left the soul with nothing, and it somehow has to open in that nothing and find the non-thing that is God. And again, my state can't be the more sort of pushy of the pair. Uh, says, don't wait for that to happen. <laughs> abandon God before, you know, just abandon God. In the, whenever, I can't remember when you think it was 1100 and something, it was 1100 and something, 1300 and something. Completely radical thing to say in that context of like, you know, uh, thickly. Um, together medieval society, completely right. In fact, he was put on trial for it. St. John of the Cross was also thrown in prison. Um, so, in a way, in a way, at one level, perhaps what it comes to is that God, or what we would say is God, is empty like everything else. But again, please, emptiness is not nihilistic. It's not, um, what a draw, that's a disappointment, you know. It's not, it's not like that. Uh, emptiness is not saying something doesn't exist or it does exist. It's something beyond that. It, emptiness is not blah. It's not a case of the blahs. It doesn't bring the blahs. It's not depressing. Rather, one of my teachers used to say, the sign of emptiness is joy. The sign of any, any understanding, beginning to understand or open to emptiness is joy. And I would say the more one goes into emptiness, in a way, the more joy, the more love, the more uh, freedom, and almost paradoxically, the more devotion. There is a sense, uh, a very profound sense that comes of devotion in life. And it's not even necessarily devotion to, to a thing and one maybe doesn't even know what one's devoted to. So for some people who make that journey from sense of a personal God and a personal relationship with God, for some people who then go on that journey and, and go through all that or some of that, um, there can be a real grief real grief that something uh, beautiful has gone out of the life uh, for a period, for a period, that can be a real grief. Uh, but is it that it's gone or has one just gone deeper into God in, in, in that language? So by saying all this, uh, I mean, I've actually buried only an idea of what people's relationship with all this in a few cases of people that I know better because they've been here for a while or whatever. Most of you have actually no idea. Um, and for most people coming to Buddhist, it's not 
that much of a burning question anyway. But uh, it's not my intention to be destructive at all. So if anything, uh, sometimes when we talk about empty, I say this is empty, that's empty, blah, 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 and it sounds like, well, you've just gone ahead and destroyed everything, haven't you? Uh, not my intention at all. Not my intention. And I don't know if that's really what emptiness does. So whatever way we look at it, actually, uh, like God and the ultimate truth, the word God, the sense of God, the concept of God, is, is absolutely not for everyone. Some people are never going to be interested in it, as I said. But freedom has to be for everyone. We have to be interested in freedom, even if we're using the word of God or not. We have to be interested in the opening of love, whether we're using the word God or not. And we have to be interested in the truth, whether there's God or not. And maybe, in the end, if we really take all this very deeply, it's the same. few minutes of silence together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.